Yeah, so the first question that we have is, uh, can you give some context into the ideologies of the nationals at the time in Ireland? Yeah, sure, Kelvin. Um, so, you know, nationalist demands had been growing in strength in Ireland really for several decades, I suppose. Uh, and this Ireland was pretty typical of Europe and indeed much of the wider world. Um, as more and more subject peoples began to think about themselves as nations and they began to demand autonomy from the empires that really had been the dominant political structures really from the right through the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and very often they were empires headed up by sort of dynastic families. So increasingly then, uh, you know, groups who were defining themselves as national groups or as uh, very often organized around ideas of ethnicity or language or culture were beginning, beginning to assert their right to govern themselves. So in Ireland, those demands had grown really fast in the second half of the 19th century. And they'd grown alongside a sort of growth of a, a really lively print culture, newspapers and memoirs and pamphlets and magazines kind of promoting nationalist ideas, but also growing democratization of society. So not just that more people had the vote uh, and more people did have the vote in the second half of the 19th century, but more and more people were participating in politics at local levels. They were joining societies and clubs and debating groups and leagues and parties. And also then you had the cultural revival, which was sort of influencing nationalist ideas. So then most of the late 19th century and early 20th century, as most people know in Ireland, that sort of demand for national autonomy, the sort of the aim was home rule. So that was a pretty limited form of self-government. Um, Ireland was going to remain inside the UK. Obviously, I think most of your listeners will know Ireland was an integral part of the United Kingdom at that stage. It wasn't just that it was part of the empire, but it was part of the core of the empire, the United Kingdom. Um, and home, the, home, the idea of home rule was that, uh, you know, Ireland would still remain part of the United Kingdom, would have, would have more control over uh, certain elements of life uh, in the country, uh, more control over things like policing and uh, health and uh, even to some extent over finance, although they wouldn't have control over things like foreign affairs and the military and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that campaign for home rule actually escalated and radicalized opinion because as Irish nationalists demanded home rule, there was like sort of a counter uh, resistance, not just in Britain, but just as importantly in Ireland among people who were describing themselves as unionists who wanted to retain the union and Ireland's part in the union. So nationalist views and unionism is a form of nationalism as well. Nationalist views were radicalizing in Ireland really in the late 19th and early 20th century around this idea of home rule and they really radicalized in the years just before the first world war because of the third home rule bill became the set the, the center of debate that's further radicalized by the first world war and the first world war radicalizes opinion in a couple of ways it does so at a local level because um you have the rising and you have the crackdown in it and then you have the subsequent protests after that and the subsequent crackdown in it and the wartime legislation and the wartime conditions facilitates a pretty harsh crackdown uh, and that builds resentment among nationalists but also um the threat of conscription really informs a growth in sort of nationalist opinion in ireland so that's the sort of at the local level and at an international level it also feeds nationalism because with the end of the war, you see the crumbling of empires, particularly in Eastern and Central Europe. So the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire are all sort of breaking up and 
ethnic groups and national groups are achieving independence across Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe, in 1918, 1919, into 1920. And Irish people are looking at this and they're very aware of it. And they're saying, well, if these groups can assert their national identity, uh, why can't we? So the war has that sort of double or even triple destabilizing effect in Ireland. That's brilliant. Um, I'm only thinking there, as you were saying, kind of the, the, with the Cultural Revolution kind of happened, the cultural uh, uplift, I suppose, of the, the language and the literary revival and everything else. Ireland must have been such a like it must have been such a bustling, alive, like lively, like place to be. I suppose at the end of World War One, like those months, I'd say November of nineteen eighteen, when World War One ends, just before the um, War of Independence, a couple of months later, it must have been such a, a melting pot of ideas and like strong opinions. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously that's very much fed by the feverish atmosphere around the general election, which is one of the things yeah, that's sorry. triggered by the end of the war. Um, so there hadn't been a general election since 1911. Uh, you know, obviously there would have been one due in 1915 or 1916, but it's wartime and there hasn't been one. Uh, and one of the factors that influences that is that you have a young electorate, an increasingly young electorate, because the voting age is lowered. OK, <laughs> because of the war. Uh, and then you haven't had an election for seven years. So you have this a younger generation which is really anxious to have its say at the end of the war. And they've been engaged in you know, five or six years of pretty thorough debate about the kind of Ireland they want to see and they want their say on it. But also you have women, not all women, but you have a, you know, a reasonable proportion of, uh, of women in Irish society who have the vote for the first time as well in 1918. And again, their sort of aspirations and hopes for the future are being, uh, you know, for the first time, um, they hope at least reflected in the vote uh, and things like that. So, you know, there's also the sense, I think, of profound possibility, I suppose, that the war, yeah. the end of the war brings. Everyone's aware that Europe is in an uncertain state, and in fact that Ireland's future is in an uncertain state, uh, and that you know it could go in various directions. So I think you're absolutely right. There's this real sense of um, uh, some people were treated with great trepidation, but other people are treating it as a world of uh, pot many potential new futures that are opening up. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, um, with this, uh, I was just going to say, um, would this be uh, kind of popular across? Like public opinion, because we know the way public opinion shifted uh, shortly after the rise, and where they didn't really like the idea, and then once they saw how they were being treated, it kind of changed. So, with this, like at this time, would the whole of Ireland be in the same public opinion, or would it be like a minute group of people? So, um, well, it, it's interesting. So, we're in a period pre-opinion polling, I suppose. So, a, a lot of the time we're sort of, we're uh, speculating as to precisely the rate at which public opinion shifts in Ireland in this period. And you're trying to measure it in some sense through, for instance, responses and things like uh, the national press to particular issues, uh, or you're trying to judge it through the extent to which people come out on the streets and protest around particular matters. Um, but the gen general election of 1918 gives you a nice snapshot, really, at that point of what a public opinion is. And it's very clear that in most of the country, particularly in the south of the country, Sinn Féin have become, you know, Sinn Féin's position has become the dominant position by late 1918. And Irish opinion has shifted away and has abandoned the old 
you know, uh, institution of Irish nationalism, which was the Irish party, and that by and large they shifted towards Sinn Féin. Now that's not exclusively so. There are some people who are still voting for the Irish party where they have the opportunity, and the Irish party wins six seats in the general election of 1918, but they're a very, very much diminished force. And obviously you still have strong unionist opinion in the country. So unionists win a whole swathe of sweet seats across Ulster, uh, and they also win, you know, some seats in some of the more conservative parts of Dublin, etc. So you know, un unionist opinion is still is is still there and strong and uh, and uh, active in the country as well. So um, you know. And then we can't be sure about what people exactly thought they were voting for when they voted for Sinn Féin either. You know what I mean? They, there was a manifesto, but that manifesto was pretty, you know, open-ended. One yeah. thing that was clear about it was they were clear if they were going to withdraw from the British Parliament and they were going to establish an independent parliament. And they were also very clear that they were going to approach the post-war peace uh, negotiations and seek that Ireland would have a voice at those peace negotiations, uh, which would take place in, in, in Versailles from early 1919. And that's really why the Doyle meets, particularly in, in mid-January 1921, because they want to get themselves up on their feet and running so that they can mandate emissaries to go to that, that negotiation in Paris. Um, so you mentioned there about the, 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 the first Doyle meeting. So Picture ourselves on the 21st of January 1919. We've Aim de Valera there and the rest of the Irish, could we start calling them TDs then at the time, possibly? They're in the Mansion House in Dublin. And in, in South Tipperary and Solo Headbag, we have Dan Breen taking the first shots of the War of Independence. Is there any significance there that the, these two absolutely massive events happen at this, at, on the same day? Um, so I think in retrospect, uh, it's certainly come to mean a lot. I think it means more in retrospect than it did at the time, to be honest. Yeah. And the traditional dating of the War of Independence to the 21st of January really rests on what is, to some extent, a coincidence of those two events happening on the same day. Um, so, uh, you know, certainly Dan Breen and his colleagues down in Salahed Bed haven't been mandated certainly not by Sinn Féin and not even by the, H, you know, the GHQ of the Irish Volunteers at this point to act the way they do uh, on the 21st of January. Um, and what happened at Salahad Beg is really part of a pretty low level sporadic violence that's been happening in 1918 to some extent and will continue to bump along at a pretty low level through a lot of 1919. Um, it's really until, it's not until, well, depending how you date, the summer of, the summer, early autumn of 1919, you start to see the IRA in Dublin conducting a concerted guerrilla campaign against the DMP in Dublin. Some people start, call that the beginnings of an intelligence war. And yeah. then really in the early 1920 is when the IRA ratchets up its campaign against the RIC in provincial Ireland and shifts away from sort of by and large, using intimidation and boycott against the RIC and moving towards actively actively attacking RIC barracks and ambushing RIC men. So the 21st of January, that shooting of two RIC men, uh, McDonnell and O'Connell down in Salahed Big, is kind of unusual at that point. Now that said, Dan Breen, at least in afterwards, said, you know, Myself and my colleagues on in Tipperary, we were tired of this politics of protest. 
it was time to stop talking and or just to protesting and get ourselves jailed. It was time to start a war. So Breen thinks, or at least later, he says he thought he was starting a war when he when he when he uh, uh, you know organized those shootings down yeah. in, in Salahid Bay. Great um, awareness. Sorry. Great self awareness. Great self awareness. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, what is important, though, I suppose, about the them happening at the same time is that, uh, in retrospect, certainly, and as time would go would go on, the fact that the doll exists, the fact that that parliament is pushing towards the setting up of a counter state is very important to giving legitimacy to the violence that the Irish volunteers and later increasingly they'll call themselves the IRA are using because they can say actually our violence is being mandated by an existing legitimate state which has been mandated in turn by the votes of the Irish people in in December 1918. So, so, so you know in that sense it's important, it's more than a coincidence, if that makes sense. But it, it, in some ways, to be honest, it, you know, uh, it's overstating the case to say that this is the moment, hey presto, Dahl is formed, war starts, same day. Perfect. Um, yeah, as you previously mentioned, just when you're talking there about the kind of guerrilla warfare tactics that they were using, we, we always hear about like what, guerrilla warfare was but I think most of the time we don't know the full details about like plain clothes attacking and stuff like that and they go back into plain sight can you just give it a little bit more detail on what guerrilla warfare would have been like at the time yeah sure um so the sort of if we take in the first instance uh what's happening in Dublin in the summer of 1919 where you have I suppose the Dublin Brigade of the IRA uh, this, this sort of campaign is very associated with Michael Collins, but I suppose in some ways there are other people who are very involved in it, like Richard Mulcahy, uh, uh, who is actually really the, you know, the chief of staff of the Irish Volunteers at this point. And they're very aware in particular of the threat and danger of uh, the intelligence branch of the Dublin police, who are the G division. Uh, of uh, the police in Dublin and they decide that to protect themselves they have to act against them and as you described they are conducting you know assassinations in the street of those policemen so the first uh, man to be shot is uh, Patrick Smith who is a member of uh, the DMPG division uh, in uh, August 1920 and he's shot on his way home in the evening in Drumcondra, he's returning to his house in Drumcondra and you know a group of IRA men step out, shoot him and then flee the scene. And he doesn't die immediately, he dies, uh, actually he survives for quite a few number of days afterwards. Okay, And this becomes a sort of typical strategy in the urban guerrilla warfare that we're you know that you're talking about. Uh, in rural areas, um, in the first instance in 1920, you're starting to see, I suppose it's more structured in the sense you have groups actually organizing very often at night, in the first instance, attacks on RIC barracks, uh, sometimes occupied barracks, uh, but as the RIC are increasingly under pressure, they are abandoning small local barracks and they're retreating into the bigger barracks and bigger towns. And then you find the IRA sort of 
burning down or vandalizing already sort of abandoned barracks in early 1920. Uh, and then also they're conducting, um, they're beginning to ambush patrols then because the, IRS, I, the RIC are increasingly a group who are sort of hunkered down inside big barracks and then are occasionally moving out to try and control the territory and increasingly failing really to control territory around provincial island. Uh, the, the IRA are then attacking them when they're on patrol and they're sort of ambushing them at areas they believe are, you know, uh, likely to lead to success, areas where they can catch the RIC by surprise and can likely escape uh, effectively from those spaces. So that's the kind of activity that's happening. And in response, you're starting to get if this is guerrilla, this is the sort of guerrilla strategy of the IRA, and in response, you're starting to get reprisals. Or if you want to, if you want to put it another way, what's happening is a war of terror and counter-terror emerges in Ireland in 1920, and um, the RIC increasingly in retreat. Uh, you know, uh, in for instance, between July and September 1920, 55 RIC men are killed. Uh, in July and August 1920, 783 RIC men resign and leave the police. So under that kind of pressure, the government sends in um, groups to support the existing police. In the spring of 1920, the Black and Tans, and in the summer of 1920, the Auxiliaries. And the Black and Tans are largely recruited in England, and they are recruited directly into the RIC and they're dispersed around the country in RIC barracks under the control of the local RIC commanders. The auxiliaries are a little different. They're sort of an officer group and they're very clearly a sort of designated special sort of counter-terror group and they are housed in their own centres or barracks around the country, sometimes uh, work former workhouses, sometimes former hospitals, sometimes former big houses, uh, and they sort of, uh, they either patrol or sometimes when an attack has happened in the area, they launch out on these reprisal attacks, uh, you know, burning down creameries or arresting or burning down, um, you know, homes of people who are suspected of being local IRA men uh, around the country in direct response to the attacks of the, the IRA. And so the violence begins to escalate in that way, uh, in, in a sort of spiral or wave and counter wave. And inevitably, a conflict that starts off being targeted, the IRA targeting either the police or, or the British Army and the police thinking they're targeting the IRA in response, inevitably what happens is civilians start to become embroiled in the conflict and civilian deaths uh, escalate as well as, you know, identified military deaths, if that makes sense. Yeah, we were, um, like me and Calvin, we were raging if we didn't mention the sack about Reagan because where we're both from, well, Calvin's from there and I'm from just down the road, Mr. Mullen. Um, and we were, we were going to ask, but you could, I think you covered a lot of that there about the impacts this had on local areas. Um, and as you said, they kind of, they obviously were killing a couple of civilians, the RIC in reprisal, we won't say retaliation, but reprisal, um, reprisals, but they would have, rather than going out and like finding the IRA, IRA men and killing them, they would have largely focused on the, like, and, and especially in Brigham, you had the hosier factories that yeah. where, where Queen Victoria got her, got her pants and yeah. John Lane got his trousers. Um, so it was all mainly, it, it had a really harsh effect on the economy of these areas, as well as, you know, the, 
like the, the population? Absolutely. From the point of view, so, uh, you know, as you say, from ba in Balbriggan, it's the 20th of September of 1920 that the, uh, you know, the event sort of happens. And there's uh, two RIC brothers are in the local pub, Smith's, that evening. Uh, they're Peter and William Burke. And there's a conflict between them and the local IRA and um, Peter Burke is killed. Um, and in response, you have a raid out of Gormanstown camp by auxiliary and RIC men, because Gormanstown camp is a very important training center for these new police auxiliaries who've arrived into Ireland. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult for them to identify the IRA men who've actually conducted the killing of their police colleague. So they're exacting their revenge effectively on the general populace. And increasingly, they just see the whole populace as the enemy, quite frankly, particularly those British Army and auxiliary policemen who've come in from outside. If you're the local RIC, you're probably aware of the gray, you know, so the subtle gradations in communities between people who are really likely to be local IRA supporters yeah, and people who are just generally nationalists, whatever. But but you know, the black and tans, the auxiliary, the British Army, you know, their intelligence isn't sufficiently strong for them to, to distinguish between these people and communities. And they just exact general reprisals. And you're spot on, Adam. One of the things they're doing is they're targeting the sort of local social and economic assets of communities. So in Balbriggan, you know, as you say, the hosier factory, the hosiery factory, uh, in lots of rural provincial Munster where much of the conflict is happening. And it's important to say it's not an all-Ireland-wide conflict. You know, it's concentrated in particular areas. And in rural Munster, it's very often the local creamery that's burned down in response because that's the sort of local social and economic centre of a rural agrarian community. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and, and this is the general pattern that sets in. So a couple of days after Balbriggan, uh, there's an ambush in Renine in County Clare by the IRA and six RIC constables are killed. And that night, the Black and Tans uh, burned down 26 buildings in local towns, Milltown, Malbay, Lahinch, Ennis Diamond, and they kill six civilians. Uh, and again, a few days later, something similar happens in, uh, in, um, in Leitrim. Uh, and, you know, uh, people at home who are listening would be familiar with other instances of this, like the burning of Cork, for instance. Cork, again. Cork, yeah. um, so this becomes a very, very typical pattern in late 1920 and early 1921. And one of the effects of the increasing crackdown is that the IRA tends to sort of go on the run from their local communities then. And they turn to form what are known as flying columns. Uh, and, you know, so, and that leads to, again, an escalation of the kind of guerrilla warfare that we were talking about a few minutes ago, Kelvin, that you were asking, you know, um, how, how is this being conducted? Uh, you know, so once you have groups of young men now on the run together, uh, unmoored from their communities, they seem to be more... Um, the, the sort of barriers that your, 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 your elderly parents might put on you, in a, you know, of an evening and say, are you really, really going to go out and start shooting people now, Kelvin? Uh, and when you're at home with them, you might think twice about it. But when you're on the run with Adam and me, uh, it's much more likely that you're going to prepare to cross the threshold of violence. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Peer pressure at its finest. <laughs> um, no, well, we'd absolutely be remiss if we didn't mention about your, you know, your, I suppose, your in-depth knowledge of Collins and his, especially his role during all of this, without re reading from the book completely and having to keep taking two more hours of your time. In short, which obviously is so hard to do, 
uh, from a biographer's point of view, what is Collins's role in this? Well, Collins is, the thing about Collins, the thing that makes him interesting is I suppose he has multiple roles, Adam. Uh, and I, 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 you're, you're now going, oh no, he's going to give me a 25 minute answer about Collins' multiple roles. Uh, but I, I suppose he has a very important function in the first instance is that he's Minister for Finance in the Dáil government. Lots of people think about him as the sort of military mastermind, but really importantly, he's Minister of Finance. And that means he manages the money, okay? So he's very important to the raising of the money through things like the Dáil loan. And then equally important, he's, he, he, you know, he's, he has a role in the distribution of the money uh, that's gonna finance the kind of campaigns we've been talking about. So that's very important, okay? Then his role in terms inside the IRA um, is that he's crucial in many ways, the kind of in development of the kind of, uh, I suppose, guerrilla war, the sort of intelligence wars that sometimes described that, uh, that was going on. He's not actually the chief of staff of the IRA. Uh, you know, um, as I said already, Richard Mulcahy is that. Um, and in very often, you know, he's not in the field himself, for instance. So, uh, you know, he fired a gun during the 1916 Rising. And I think it's highly doubtful that he fired a gun again until the Civil War, okay? So during the War of Independence, he's really sort of managing, uh, or at least attempting to manage some of the conflict from behind a desk in Dublin, okay? Uh, and he's attempting to ensure that the IRA has effective intelli intelligence gathering operation. He's trying to ensure that uh, um, de effective decisions are made about the ways in which violence is unleashed. And obviously that's most famous around uh, Bloody Sunday in 21st of November, 1920, when he is you know, involved in the planning of that. Um, and he's conscious of, on the one hand, the, the need to undermine British intelligence capacity in Ireland on that day, but also he's mindful of the need to make a splash, okay? The sort of the effectiveness of the spectacular and achieving attention, international attention through the use of violence. And the other thing he's very conscious of when he uses violence is he's very aware of this process of violence and counter-violence. And he actually you know, I don't want to say he wants to see Irish people killed, but what I would say is that he's very aware that there are advantages for the Irish cause when the counter violence, when the reprisals are out of proportion and when, they when, when the Irish cause can be represented as the cause of the poor downtrodden victim Irish nation seeking its fair Jews seeking independence from the brutal oppressing British Empire. Uh, so in that sense, he's, he, he's, he's aware of uh, the practical management of violence, but he's also aware of the propaganda of violence. Okay, brilliant. And now not to, not to get this all over the newspapers and, and tomorrow, but um, so we'll, we'll, I'll try not to get, get too, um, too superficial, but could you give me or us or even just an idea of your opinion of Neil Jordan's spectacular Michael <laughs> uh, Look, Jordan's film has been extraordinarily influential. Okay. Um, it marks, 
a really, you know, an upsurge in the interest in Collins in the 1990s, okay? Uh, and, you know, but it is what it is. It's, it's a Hollywood movie. So there are two things to be said about it, I suppose. First, it is of its time in that it very much presents Collins as a man of violence who becomes a statesman, okay? And who shifts towards becoming a man of peace, okay? And that's really part of the politics of the 1990s in the sense of that's the era of the peace process. And there's a sort of argument going on with the IRA then and saying, you know, you know, what you need to do to be like the great Irish hero Michael Collins is to shift from violence and towards coming to an accommodation, okay? And I think that's a bit simplistic. I think Collins was both a politician and a man of violence before the treaty, and he remained both a politician and a man of violence after the treaty, okay? He, he, uh, so that's the first thing to say about it. Uh, the second thing on the sort of Hollywoodification of the Irish War of Independence that it entails, um, look, that's understandable. It's, it, in some ways, what it seems to me that it does is it puts the Irish War of Independence through the sort of classic Hollywood sort of gangster film mangler yeah. and sends it out the far end. So if you look at Bloody Sunday, it's remarkably like those, that scene late in The Godfather, uh, where Michael Corleone decides he's finally tipping over the edge and he's accepted his role in the world. He has become the Godfather and he decides uh, several of his key enemies need to be assassinated. I don't know if you remember the scene and he's at the christening of his child and there's a cross cut between the christening and the series of assassinations, you know. So do you reject the devil? I do cross cut. Shot, shooting an enemy of, you know, Corleone, okay? Oh, heads, the head's uh, horse is found in the bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Bloody Sunday in Michael Jordan is, you know, Michael and Kitty. I don't know if you remember the scene, but it's Michael Kitty and Kitty in the hotel someplace in Dublin, you know, and it's cut to them whispering sweet nothings at each other and then cut okay. to, you know, someone being shot. Cut back to Michael and Kitty, cut back to someone being shot. So just in that sense, the very... The fact that it's so cinematic, I suppose, does something to how we think about violence, okay? Uh, which is, you know, uh, potentially problematic. That said, it is what it is. It's a movie. It's not a history book. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And like we see, and we see the commemorations of it now. I remember seeing Brendan Gleeson and Croke Park reading out the, I thought it was, I mean, he actually read out everybody who died that day. It was, it kind of brought, brought it back to a bit more humanity of like, People act. It wasn't like this, as you said, Godfather-esque big explosion and killing. It was actually young people, young people that had so much left of their lives to live. You know, dead at a football match, that kind. Of, so, yeah. Of it. And this is the thing about the violence. You know, in the morning you had a very, very, you know, brutal close quarters violence that the morning involved, where you know. Uh, men who are identified as either intelligence agents, some of them are, some of them aren't, who are being shot in their beds, in their pajamas, in front of their, you know, wives, uh, in front of landladies and servants and things like that. Uh, and in the afternoon, then you have the quite brutal violence at Crow Park, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, both of them are, you know, terrible in their own way. Uh, and I think one of the things that's important about what's happened over uh, 
the the last few years is there's been, there has been an awareness of that. Okay, there's been a sort of reflective uh, thinking about the violence. And I think that's actually been the commemorations have been quite successful in that regard. I mean, on the one hand, they are a commemoration of an achievement of independence. You know, that's straight. That's clear. You know, we wouldn't be commemorating what happened, I don't think, or certainly we wouldn't be commemorating it in the way we are, if there wasn't some sense that something momentous had happened that is worth remembering. Okay, but on the other hand, uh, the cost is also being counted. I think, and people are aware that people died, but also the people who did the killing, it cost them a lot. Uh, they had to live with what they did uh, in the years afterwards. And very often they found it difficult to live with what they did in the years afterwards. 